Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadine O'Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last time out, my guest was the immunologist, Trinity professor and author Luke O'Neill. This time around, my guest is, I'm delighted to say, David Gray. He is, of course, the very successful British musician who first became a breakout star back in the late 1990s when he released his fourth album, White Ladder. It was a record which was pretty unusual for its time because it married quite a plain singer-songwriter style, the style he'd had actually on his first three records, Century Ends, Flesh and Cell, 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 with a kind of an electronica element that, you know, I think these days is very common, whether you're talking about someone like Ed Sheeran or even maybe Dermot Kennedy. But back then, it was either singer-songwriter style, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, that kind of thing, or it was Orbital, The Chemical Brothers, The Prodigy. So to have someone who went between the two and made tracks that had a real human dimension to them, there was a lot of emotion in there, it was something new. White Ladder was outrageously successful. In Ireland, in fact, it became the best-selling album in chart history, a record that has never been bettered and probably never will be now that we have Spotify. I first became a fan of David Gray back in the mid to late 90s. I went along to see him play many times in uh, a little village called Lep near my hometown uh, of Skibbereen in West Cork. And I've seen him in so many venues since. Of course, he's released so many albums. He's back now with his 12th record, Skellig, a very beautiful work, which he'll be talking about as part of the podcast. It's a pretty long and loose chat, taking in his early years, tracking around to really tiny venues in Ireland and playing to really, really small crowds. We also talk about contemporary times as well, the live music industry, Brexit, and what it feels like now to be part of the Spotify generation in terms of releasing music. He also gives a mention to some of his Irish friends, Donald Scannell, who made a documentary about him called Ireland's Greatest Hit, which aired on RT television in the summer of 2020. And he talks about, at the very start of the interview, Donald Deneen, the Irish DJ, who proved to be something of an inspiration for the new record. Before we go to our interview, a quick mention as ever, of my Patreon account. Uh, This podcast is free and always will be, but if you would like to support the podcast to the tune of a cup of coffee or whatever makes sense, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan. N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N. If you'd like to get in touch with me also via the show Twitter, it's twitter.com forward slash my roots are show. And my personal Twitter account is at Nadine O'Regan. And as I always say, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do consider giving them a generous star rating on your podcast platform of choice. It's always hugely appreciated or even just tell your friends about the podcast. Now, before we go to David, let's hear some of his music, tracking back through the years. These are snippets old and new, starting with Sail Away from White Ladder, going into Shine from his first album, The Century Ends, and concluding with the beautiful Spiral Arms, taken from the new album, Skellig. Spinning round inside my head Sail on away with me, honey I put my heart in your hand Sail on away with me, honey Now, now, now Sail on away with me What will be First night when I held you near We're gonna rise from these ashes Like a bird of flame Take my hand, we're gonna go Yeah. 
is David Gray's My Roots Are Showing. David Gray, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Delighted to have you on the podcast and congratulations on the new record, which is very, very beautiful. And put me in mind, actually, of your very first record, A Century Ends, and it's called Skellig. So Irish people are obviously, their ears are going to prick up at that. So before we talk about anything else, we do need to, well, I need to find out why Skellig, why the name, why the title, and uh, yeah, tell us a little. Well, the there's the place Skellig and that story of a, the, a, an account of going there was told to me, which just lit my mind up. Uh, Donald Deneen went there on a boat trip out from Ke- the Kerry coast years and years ago. And when he got back, I happened to bump into him not long after. And he just, he was still electrified by this experience. And he described the hand cut steps, but up hundreds of meters to this kind of towering you know, um, plateau, uh, and there's what had happened there, the monks living there for hundreds of years. And, um, the thought of it just lit my imagination and it stayed lit. And, uh, you know, within the year, I think I, I just began writing this song. Um, and, and then from the song, which is a sort of about, it doesn't really explore the idea of Skellig the island, apart from right at the end, where it sort of talks about cutting a stairway with your hands. Um, it, it's really just a yearning to get towards purity, away from the, the pollution and the noise uh, that's just basically that overpowers um, the, the silence most of the time. So it, it's a song of yearning, really, and... Um, it, it's it's got a strange lulling sort of wave-like rhythm and it held a power over me uh, and and soon I realised once I layered vocals on it rather amateurishly to begin with that actually that really it, it had its own distinct character and as soon as I sort of acknowledged that and developed it a bit other songs began to follow which seemed to be following the same path and I had a couple already in my locker like Laughing Gas uh, so Dunleary came after Skellig, and then there was a sort of an unfolding of several things. And, I, and then over the years, I've just gathered anything that I felt that fitted with it. So I knew it needed to sit on its own on an album that was basically, that had the freedom to just float and drift and let the lyric take centre stage. So when we added all the voices for the first time on t- in 2013, the, the Sounding Out tour, that was the moment when this idea really gathered pace and um, just having everyone singing rather than me just throwing parts over it. Mm. It, it made it so powerful, uh, the communal aspect of it. It had, it had just this spellbinding kind of atmosphere, just singing it, I mean, let alone without the audience. But when we took it to gigs, it just, it created this mood. It was wonderful. It was like pushing off from the shore. It felt like suddenly going out in a rowing boat and we were crossing somewhere. And, and and that's what I want music to be. I want it to be somewhere people can get to. I don't want it to be branded. I don't want to tie it in with Pepsi or, you know, Volvo. I want it to be its own thing. And we were, we, so that's that's what it was. That's that's how it began. And 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 I think with, with that, that tour, I acknowledged that this thing needed to be really done properly. And ever since 2013, I've been storing songs, sculpting, working, and it's like, 15 years preparing for one short burst of activity to record it all. And I knew that had to take place somewhere. So not in my home studio, somewhere else. We all had to go somewhere as a group, stop, turn the phones off and just be somewhere for, for a week. And we recorded it in five days in Edwin Collins studio up in Scotland, which is suitably sort of remote. It's way, way up, almost at John O'Groats. And uh, that was a perfect landing spot for this sort of this whole idea because him and Grace, his wife and his son, Will, were just the most lovely people. And they just basically they understood. They got it. They just they created the vibe. They left us to it. We just took the place over for a week and they brought the food in, got the booze in. 
it was it was it was absolutely superb and and, and a suitably sort of heady experience to go with this to be so close to music like this i mean drums bass all that stuff that that's monumental but something about taking it all away uh and something about what i do which is tell stories and very lyric driven stories you get something else and it's, it's all, this is all about the vocals and the group singing really and the space in this thing every song needs space in it one thing that struck me listening to the record was that you could almost hear the sound of the wind you know there are songs like uh, dares my heart to be free or house with no walls there's a sense of not the actual wind but almost a sense of like movement uh through the production and that seems to kind of ebb and flow through the songs which i presume was a deliberate tactic yeah yeah the noise and the kind of the sonic subtleties you know we had some time after the event it was all recorded at the spring of 2018 so some time ago but when i got it back to my studio yes we 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 played up the textures so we got synths and on the synth, you can just have noise. So we created kind of white noise and odd noise that, that we could have just, like, sometimes the songs felt too naked just sitting there. So you actually create a kind of a weird, uh, just a flickering kind of mica spangled kind of half light that they kind of sit in. It's very subtle, but yeah. So those things are de- very deliberate and, 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 and it was great fun doing all that. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and I, I think when I've, after two years getting away from the recording, I was slightly concerned working in, in the sort of cold light of day on top of these recordings that were done live in this place with all these people, you know, rough and ready. And I didn't want to sort of get too professional on top of them. But actually, it, that just wasn't a problem. I just slotted straight back into them. I just relaxed, relaxed the hell out of it and did a lot of drifty, guitar stuff and like I say synth noise and we 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 wove textures in or we 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 processed the pianos or the guitars in such a way that they generated noise so um yeah that was so that, that that's that's a subtle aspect that you're touching on there but it does help give the record an atmosphere I wanted it to sound like a record that was made now not 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 something made in the 1960s well one thing that struck me was that there seems to be a really strong fidelity in this record to the idea of the work, you know, the song, the craft. Uh, it feels very uh, introspective in some respects, um, but also very much not playing to a market or maybe to commerciality. And perhaps in this time, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, that approach is actually given maybe additional heft because there's an understanding on the part of all artists that actually you can't really aim for success in in inverted commas in this world uh, because so many things have been taken away that, you know, would keep people ordinarily either on the road or uh, doing different things. So it's a very introspective record in many respects that feels true to its time. It's, it's, it's got. It wanted nothing to do with the cut and thrust of the business of selling music and trying to get it onto the radio and all the other sort of aspects, the difficulties that you, you know are there if you're trying to get your music across. There's only so many sort of gateways through to your audience. So uh, this record wanted nothing to do with anything uh, to do with that. It, it just had to exist as its own thing. And that's why it was such... Um, a, a, an enormous pleasure to work on it because there was such a sense of freedom. It was so much its own thing. It just exists. It will never, you know, um, it, it's it's never going to have that kind of fast commercial life. It's just going to be there, I hope, for a long time. But you want the music like the island to be somewhere that people can travel to or through or within and 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 find something there that they can connect to and that's that's the name of the game and and there's a lot of space to make the connections of course it is introspective I mean this idea of singing about singing is something that I've been doing for quite a long time um (laughs) and I I I don't know I don't know that that's just something that's happened and um and you know there's lots of songs on this record that could be seen in that light uh, also a sort of 
a more political edge to the record. It's more uh, viscerally kind of engaged in, in in lashing out occasionally. There's a kind of um, there's there's a there's there's that sort of feeling uh, to several of the songs. Accumulates Dunleary itself. Um, you know, it, it, there's there's moments house with no walls. So there's there's a sort of tension there, and can't hurt more than this. That's there's a there's a tension there that I I don't think since my early records I've really had so many songs like that in the same place. But they somehow work, and they're an important part of the mix because it's not just about creating some kind of floaty soft record that oh you could fall asleep to this. I mean, there does have to be an edge. The difference between my first record and this record so many years later is that it's not put across with the same force. It's just, um, I just let it happen, basically. even accumulates as it builds to a conclusion at the end and I'm spitting out the last verse. I'm not really going for it. It's laid back always. So the the lines aren't given some kind of ranting, raving kind of, uh, you know, quality that it's always, sitting back and and I and I think it's much more effective for that Mm. Uh, well I remember many many years back uh, when you were starting out touring Ireland in the kind of the 90s around the time of A Century Ends and Flesh uh, you used to play a song about the record company that I don't think you ever released Uh, it could have been called something like Confines or I don't think it ever came out actually but it was a very angry song I don't know is that ringing a bell yeah, I do remember that one. It's called Can't Stand the Confines. That was it. And, you know, the I suppose when you look back now, um, you know, on the new album, you've lines like, you know, feel that autumn wind when my hair is thin. And immediately there's a sense of years having passed. Uh, but when you look back to that young man that you were in, in the early 90s. It hasn't thinned, actually. I mean, I just want to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good line though it's a good line um i know but i mean i, I am going to point that out at the same time it almost would have a disclaimer i, I could all, i thought of just coming in on just stage left and go, it hasn't actually thinned and then just leaving the song again uh but yeah no that's 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 true yeah well it does i'm, I'm well of course i'm i'm in my 50s now a lot of time has passed yeah, when you look back, though, you know, the you, you mentioned that the anger is still there on the record and the themes are still there around uh, discontent, whether political or of a personal nature. But d- do you recognise that young man who stared out from the cover of the album art of A Century Ends? Yeah, of course, of course, I, I, I do. But it's strange. It's strange looking at your old selves. You know, and that's one of the weird things about music, having recordings of yourself, giving everything you had in 1992, 93, 94, 95, having these pictures of yourself. It's not just the visual image, but actually thinking about what your life was like, what you were like, the kind of things you were thinking and doing. I read an old interview um, when we were doing, I think maybe just going through the archive around the time of putting the white ladder package together, I, I found a box and it had some photocopies of interviews to do with the century ends. And one was with the enemy, one was with the melody maker sounds and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and one of the things that really struck me about it, apart from my utter naivety, um, was the fact that the things I really cared about, about music and about what I was trying to do, were exactly the same as they are now. So some things are common, but in so many other ways, you know, I'm just not the same person. I, I, I am, but you know, I, I've been, you know, I've been maimed by rock and roll to quote Wilco. I've been changed utterly by the things that have happened to me, personal things and 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 more broadly through the music and the success and the difficulties that came with the success and, and the whole exposure, the grand exposure that is fame and glory and getting your face everywhere and being up there to be shot down. You can't put it back in the box and it's something you've got to learn to live with. So having sort of mutated like the virus in order to survive this process, um, it's it's funny looking back at your innocent self. But as I say, I do find common ground in the themes and the obsessions and the driving urgency of wanting to say something that remains unchanged. Mm. I remember first seeing you at Connolly's of Lep in West Cork and, you know, it was a trek to get to see you because what people, I suppose, 
may not realise is, uh, and it's actually still the case today, it's, it's hard to get a taxi to Connolly's of Lep, but uh, at that point, you know, getting out to this venue, which was in a very, very small village uh, in a very isolated part of the world, uh, was hard, you know, so going to see the see you play was like a pilgrimage as it was for any of the other bands we would have seen around the time whether it was the frames or watercress from Belfast or Big Bag of Sticks and this little venue in the middle of West Cork acted as this kind of hub where people would be like how can we get there and how can we see this person and the rarity of the gig as well as the feeling of privilege about being able to get there all I think conspired to make it feel very, very special, you know, as you walked through the door and Connolly's of Lep, I, you know, I don't know how well you recalled or how often you're there, um, but, you know, it was a, a small venue bedecked yeah. in, you know, posters. The people, the, balcony and, were, the people in the balcony were virtually in your hair. Yeah, uh, yeah, they were. And I remember some extraordinary moments when, you know, Glenn Hansen of the Frames jumped up onto the balcony and then threw himself off it, uh, <laughs> expecting the very small number that that venue could contain to, to hold him. Uh, and of course, a big gap immediately emerged and the poor fella had a rough time. Um, but, but, you know, it was a very special kind of point because Spotify hadn't emerged. Music wasn't easily available. CDs cost a lot of money. So the sense around that time of a pilgrimage was there for the audience and I wonder what it was like for you traveling all those miles to get to venues like that well it was all um you know a, a bit one great big adventure and I, th- I think the fact that there was such a lively atmosphere and a you know a willing audience who wanted to listen as well as contribute and energize the room you know, it was the thing that I was looking for so and the fact it was in these the fact that something like that could be happening in the far, far-flung reaches of Cork seemed remarkable in itself and seems to tell a story within the story of Ireland of the kind of passion that exists there that even makes a venue like that possible. Mm-hmm. I can't think of an equivalent in Wales, mm-hmm. you know, where I was brought up for much of my uh, young life. Um, so it's 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 a it's a it, it's it was a it was a wonderful thing. That was that gig was kind of intense because you basically. The guy who ran it, um, Kula Bula, I can't remember his name now, but um, he was, he was, you were basically in his house when you were above, you know, at the back of the venue. So you, it was a kind of very personal thing. Uh, that was at a period when we'd just been around America, I think, doing, you know, what was a horrific um, and utterly deflating, um, rather futile tour supporting Cell, Cell, Cell. And we came back to Ireland and we did a smattering of shows and it felt even more important, you know, because we'd just been in the wilderness, quite literally somewhere in the Midwest, just being ignored. It's quite easy for America to ignore you, you know, (laughs) and it did. That's what I remember about that time. Every gig, it it was just wonderful that they they had a kind of energy to them and there was something to play up to. And who were your inspirations around that time? Because thinking back, if you think about the 90s, of course, grunge was becoming uh, and had already become actually such a big presence, the likes of Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Uh, But then there was in Ireland particularly a really great uh, kind of community around singer songwriters. So, you know, people from abroad like Josh Ritter and yourself, but then people in Ireland like Gemma Hayes, Paddy Casey, Mundy, um, Mick Christopher, there were a lot of people who were, you know, getting a lot of positive press. So it almost felt like you were going down. I mean, would it be fair to say the Bob Dylan route in your early days and that the, somebody like Bob Dylan was somebody that you kind of thought of when you were thinking of writing great lyrics? Well, I mean, like, if we go right back to the beginning, I mean, there's lots of sort of dominant strains in my music and Bob Dylan is definitely one. I mean, I was riveted the first time I really connected with his stuff. Um, you know, the, just it, the, the colour of his, his phrases were just was so vivid. I, I'd never really heard anything that, like that before. It was so sparse. There was so much room and his imagination was was just creating these ferocious ideas that it was uh, it was irrepressible music and I just loved its utter sort of stark simplicity so that had a profound effect on me when I heard it but at the same time at that point I was coming out of my madness phase I was probably about 15 I was in my sort of specials madness 
and 80s music, you know, like it, I'd gone more into the indie thing, sort of the Cure, the Cult, the Smiths, the Cocteau Twins, the Cramps, all those bands and that sort of, that stuff has sort of stayed with me, you know. I, if I ever have to do a guitar solo, it would probably be closer to a Robert Smith style sort of uh, <laughs> one noter. <laughs> it's still my preferred thing. So, so, so that, that was all the music I was listening to. And then as I discovered the Dylan thing, you know, I, I began to find out that I found about Leonard Cohen. And I remember that I started with a weird record of his, uh, a new skin for an old ceremony. Uh, and and then worked out from there and I discovered John Martin and blah, 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 and Van Morrison. And that was another big moment all around that time in about 17, 18, because that was more what I was inclined towards was writing lyrics. And um, even the bands I was interested in generally, they were kind of a bit lyrical. The Smiths or the, the Cure, there was a kind of interesting angle going on. So anyway, yeah, so that's that, that those were the things that, that were the part of that formative era. But in a weird way, you know, uh, the, the the pop music of the time has almost has the most profound effect upon you. So if, you know, like uh, uh, even the bad stuff, you know, it sounds good now. Um, you know, I, I love Yazoo these days. The things were so vividly um, yeah. styled. It was like sonically and in every way mm. it was really remarkable you know fun boy three all this stuff all this with banana rama it's like the coolest guy in pop music who made miserable fashionable you know uh you've got bloody uh the lead singer of the specials terry hall with going with banana rama and all that mad stuff it was like a it's an interesting time but anyway that's the stuff i guess that's that went in almost deepest because it that you're part of a peer group and, and 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 it's that stuff that you're all identifying with the Dylan ideas and the songwriting ideas kind of that was a little bit later when I was maybe about 16 15 16 17 so yeah but that that's those are the sort of the two things and then I started to discover you know more significant records and in inverted commas and went to art school and you know Keith Jarrett Miles Davis and all that kind of thing uh, and you know, talk, 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 and that stuff, yeah. and that was quite profound as well. And then came to London, and in that early '90s period, that's when I was exposed to the kind of a music I had no interest in. No, I mean, when I was at, at art school, lots of the kids suddenly got bang into sort of doing E and going out and getting completely wrecked and listening to this kind of uh, what seemed to me like thudding, moronic noise. Uh, it wasn't my cup of tea. You know, I went out on a couple of these things. I just, I'm, I don't like when you can't talk. I, I don't really. That's not really my bag. So it, it, I, it was not music I was really connected to. And then weirdly, because of my manager being Rob Holden and the connection with Orbital, and then blah blah blah, I, I started going out to these gigs and knowing those two, and they were probably about as sophisticated as electronic music got at the time. It was more like watching the contemporary craft work, you know, doing their thing. So that was actually yeah. really interesting because they got such great sounds. And I go in the studio and listen to the messing and stuff. How do I get my hands on this stuff? Mm. So that was another influence that came in. I could see that, you know, much as I didn't like gridded music, it just kind of went like that. Mm. Um, or I didn't know, I hadn't learned a way myself of keeping the humanness in my songs while while working to a computerized grid that would come a bit later with white ladder i suppose i sort of worked out how to do that by doing it at home mm -hmm. so doing a very laid back very live vocal over something that's perfectly in time and then you can mess with the music as much as you want well it was a really strange few years for you because i remember at a certain point uh mary black was you know covering uh tracks of yours um around around late night radio um and then came the white ladder album and in one sense when i started to hear the name mary black i was thinking oh this kind of casts his career in a very particular light you know uh maybe a more um you know great respect to mary black but maybe a bit more of a middle of the road kind of light and then you come along with white ladder which to be honest for a lot of fans of the early records was something of a shock to the senses and even with the orbital connection and knowing i think you were related by marriage at the time to uh one of the hartnell's um 
Phil. Phil. Um, but uh, it was a shock. Um, and it was funny because it does make me, it, it, well, it, ma- it makes me think now of, you know, those t-shirts, I liked Dark Ride Fire before, you know, I preferred the early stuff. And I think there were a bunch of people going around, you know, Century Ends fans going, oh my God, before we put it out, we were having exactly that discussion because we, we knew the sort of earnest sort of head scratchers the chin stroking sort of earnest sort of century ends heads. We were just wondering what they were going to make of this. Uh, (laughs) I can tell you, (laughs) I was in college uh, in UCC and I got a review copy of the album because I was working for the college paper and utter shock, just utter shock. (laughs) Yeah, it was a big step off. But, uh, you know, that was. I think that's one of the things that gave the record such um, energy Mm. was that, um, it, we weren't just exhausting a sort of rather exhausted form. It, it, there was a lot of freedom to just, and, w- and what we did was still very gritty and small scale. We had fuck all. I mean, we, it's just basically, we, we recorded Clune's drums and we messed with them in a sampler. It, it's, it wasn't like it was uh, that radical, but just it, the way it sounded and not just that, the atmosphere of it, the fact that it was, there was an upsweep even through the melancholic. It had a kind of, and I, and I think that the, the, that, that was because it, I, I was basically on the rebound uh, from, from basically hitting rock bottom with Sell, Sell, Sell. It was basically miserable. And I, in my songwriting and in everything, I, I, I disengaged my any preconceived ideas I had about, like I say, working with a click track, working with a computer, with a producer, blah, blah, blah. And then all those things, I'm like working with someone else, writing with someone else, working with Clue. I, I, I let all the boundaries fall. I just didn't give, I didn't give a fuck because none of that's important. All that matters is the thing you're doing, how much heart, energy, creativity you're giving it. And we gave it everything we had. But the kind of record that was this hybrid form that came out of three people just working closely together with next to no equipment, uh, it, it sounded more like a record made in 1998 than it did like a record made in 1978 or 1968. And, and that, was, that was refreshing. We didn't have a clue what people were going to make of it. But, you know, so you know, we had that exact discussion. At the, the night we, had, we absolutely got hammered when we mastered it and we sat around and we, we said, you know, you know, what are they going to make of this? You know, Clune was like, yeah, I don't think they're going to like it. I don't think they're going to like it. <laughs> Those century ends types, you know. Uh, <laughs> you'd have well, to go it, out and do yeah. shine or something at some point, Dave. <laughs> but, but that was the thing. It actually did take a while to warm up to, in part because it was like um, being, you know, you were expecting something and it wasn't that you were reviewing what was there. It was that the the loss of the expectation had to be gotten over before you could come to appreciate what was on the record. So it actually was a process and and it grew and grew. And I, I remember just so vividly, you know, people coming back to me and going, you know, that guy that you were always saying was great. He is great. I'm like, yeah, but, but you have to understand the full span of the experience. <laughs> um, it's 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 a weird one. I mean, I do love artists that confound your expectations. It's not an easy thing to do, you know, and do it well. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the important thing is that the music has a kind of integrity to it. So you could say, oh, Leonard Cohen, you know, once he got a drum machine involved, I'm really not sure about it. The kind of later albums, but actually some of the songwriting is absolutely Brilliant, fantastic. Yeah. And once you've got over the kind of the fact he went sort of cheese, kind of cheesy band, sort of with with electronica it's 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 actually brilliant it got better there was a point around I don't know was that song in my secret life there was like was it 10 songs or uh but it just it was a little bit like the lines and the lyrics were still beautiful and his vocal was great but the backdrop was so oral wallpaper it's hard at its worst it was very hard to get your head around it Mm. you know there was once a melancholy sort of rather angry plucked guitar nylon string you know, there was suddenly like, what? Uh, but um, but any, anyway, well, I'm, I'm just these just these transitions. Um, are, mm. And that was a big transition. And, and I, you know, I, and I think it's an important thing not to just keep repeating yourself and and to be and to be open to ideas. And that's one of the lovely things about making this record. It's so profoundly different. 
the white ladder, but the, my last record, Golden of Brass Age, which in itself mm. was a step away from Mutineers, which was completely different to Foundling. You know, so it, it, I, I think that that's important. It's important for me to feel that each time I get a new sort of musical vocabulary starting to express itself to my satisfaction and the, the songs are pulling new ingredients in. So uh, it, that, it, that, it's some, that it feels something different, like it seems a representation of a different era. Mm. Um, so, you know, and that, that's just the way it is. And, it, and for a fan, it's, it, it can be a bit of a roller coaster ride. Some people just plain don't like that shit. You know, so, you know, when you start using electronic sounds or this, that would get all happy with it. They, they oh, fuck this, you know. So, uh, you know, but that, that, that's just all part and parcel. Well, this is how, do you, how do you think they stand up? Because I actually think the White Ladder songs, like the, the production stands up t- to my ears very well. 100%. And I think one of the reasons is it's sort of, it's, it's, it, was a, it was a very natural uh, and characterful, it wasn't production in the, what I was always terrified of was production and that in the sense of making something sound like everything else sounds so posh or in time, you know, um, you know, I, I didn't know if I wanted that. I, I think I like the things that aren't very good on records as well as the things that are. So it just depends how they're delivered. If Bill Callahan gives me a, a, a you know, a song where everything's out of time, but the lyric and the, the, the singing are absolutely magnetizing, I accept it all, you know, but if mm. someone else isn't quite as good as that and they do the same thing, it might not be quite as convincing. You just think this is a mess. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you can pull it all together. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I think the production was great and I think it was a perfect hybrid form. Clune's take on things, his rhythmic take and his very simple bass take, and then Yestin's electronic thing, the way he just spun the little effects in the vocoders and the, I mean, there's not much going on, but what, everything that is going on is really, you know, carrying its weight. Mm, yeah, I think it stands up so, so well. A lot of people would have expected to have been hearing a lot more of that particular album over the last year because of your touring commitments, mm. which of course, because of the pandemic had to be curtailed. Um, how would you characterize how the pandemic and your year has gone in that sense? Oh, well, it's, we're all living through something that's quite hard to uh, get some perspective on right now. I think the, the effects are, are on a small scale, just on behavioral things and just the, the knock on effect of no human contact, um, you know, hugs, kisses on cheek, shaking hands, things that just seem like weird formalities that don't really have that much meaning you know, empty gestures, you could say. But actually, no, they, they actually play a profound role in disarming the sort of space between two humans, even if they know each other quite well. Because believe it or not, built into our sort of animal pre-human selves is a, is a very wary energy that basically was caveman two who's approaching going to show you where the berries were, or was he going to hit you over the head with a rock and steal your rabbit skins? So there's there's a sort of sniffiness that comes in when you're not seeing people, and even when you see someone like working, some, there's a kind of awkward bumbling because you just you've lost this sort of thing, and also they might have the virus, you might have the virus. It's just there's so much going on. So that stuff is really weird in terms of the touring. I mean, this is devastating for the industry and for musicians. And I've got an actual sort of physical pang to to play a show and to play music with someone I'm, I'm on Friday I'm doing some live recording here distancing within the live room but it's only one other person but I actually haven't played anything with any other musician directly since you know we were in rehearsals a year ago and uh, I'm really looking forward to that we're only doing one song where the two of us are playing the producer Ben's going to play the piano while I'm playing heart and soul off uh, so it, you know that, uh, doing the heart and soul video uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we hired a venue in the end. Uh, we, we pushed the boat out and I just made it very simple. It was just me under lights, these moody lights. And uh, normally you'd only be in sort of haze and, and dark lighting when you're about to do a gig, like you're in the sound check or you're actually doing the gig. And I had a Pavlovian reaction. I'm quite a good compartmentalizer. So since the tour was cancelled, I just went, the tour is cancelled, move on exist be with family for a long time i mean it's blown that myth out that you know quality time with the family has blown that myth out the, out the water this so uh, so there i was on the stage 
And um, yeah, he put this blue haze on and it sailed away, basically. And uh, I was backlit with a blue haze and I could see my reflection, sort of my shadow in the back of the wall of this little Hoxton Hall, beautiful little venue. I, I, I just, even though I was just singing acoustically for four people, camera, two cameras, lights and producer, I, I, I had a Pavlovian reaction. I wanted to play a show so badly. And the next de- two days, I was in a terrible mood. Uh, so it, it is starting to becoming like a physical pang, not seeing friends. I mean, I'm someone who's very good at being antisocial. So for all these things, like, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's really unhealthy, this, this thing that we're going through, particularly for the, the kids. I'm looking at my kids and thinking, this is no time to be 18, 19 or 16, you know. I yeah. mean, like, what? Yeah, you and you have two it. kids, Ivy and Florence. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're flows at school here. Ivy's working in a coffee shop. It's it's so difficult for them. I, I you know, um, it's it's that that's that's really upsetting. But yeah, I, yeah, I wish I could say with confidence, next year will be great. But I really feel that the constraints of this 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 illness are, are, are going to be there even next year in some form. I, I don't mean that gigs won't happen. I don't think they'll be able to happen with sort of gloves are off kind of, yeah, let's go, you know, like load the room. It will be, there'll be some element of constraint. None of us could see how wonderful some of the things that we had were. And that that's a little bit more obvious now. The white ladder thing, it, it was only ever meant as a giveaway, like a celebration. I mean, it's just going to feel just stupendously in, like that. I think when it happens for us and for the audience, it's going to be, a sort of um, nostalgic feast, I suppose. But but more than that, I, weirdly in rehearsals, we'd we'd honed the songs. I, we've never played them so well. Uh, and we got all the original sounds. And we we're actually recreating the record, which was not what we used to do live, because at the time we didn't have enough people or technology to do that. So it was a kind of different thing live. But I, I think people would just be blown away to hear things like Silver Lining and White Ladder itself. Some of those songs that have never really been played like that. They sounded so good. And when, when you do fall in line with the technology, as you have to, if you've got, you know, drum machines involved, you have to sit back in the groove. You cannot force the issue. So it means the, the song is a more controlled event. And, I- and, and, and that can play in the song's favour. Yeah. Can I ask, and I don't know exactly the answer to this, but I am aware that a lot of uh, musicians in Britain are very concerned about Brexit in relation to what it means for them touring abroad. Uh, have you been investigating that? No. I, mean, you, I know it's going to be a giant pain in the arse. So, you know, that's, I think there's a special relationship between England and Ireland, which is pertinent to my career, obviously. Um, so I don't imagine that that will be so irksome. But if you're someone like so many bands are, I never really have been, where Europe is your base, your mainstay for the festival season, it's going to be a nightmare, you know, a nightmare. And, well, I mean, you know, let's not get started on Brexit. Brexit is just rubbing, you know, salt in the wound. I, I think it's a huge problem. At the same time, the only thing I would say is that, you know, it used to be more complicated than it was. Um, you know, it wasn't like no one could move out of the UK or do a show anywhere. So I'm sure these things can be dealt with, but it will take time and it will be chaos. And coming out of the coronavirus thing, when all everyone wants is a, a good run at things to get life back to some kind of, you know, place of prosperity, it's it's going to be far from that. It's going to be just very chaotic, lots of paperwork. And the, and the scummy way that, you know, the industry sort of talks about, you know, the the record like labels, the big ones, are making a fortune with streaming because they've got no overhead. It's just easy. Just put all your music up and people just play it. And and the, the you know, you know, artists always have live. Yes, it's difficult for them now. Yeah, because they're not making anything. I mean, mm. the, the amount you get is so small. If you're only getting a very small amount of the very small amount, and you've not that you're not that successful. You know, if you're at the sort of fifty thousand records, you know, level. I mean, what, what is that as streams? It's not that many. At least 50,000 records brought some money in. And, you know, anyway, yeah, it doesn't work, essentially. And, and there's been a lot of attention drawn to this recently. Guy Garvey, Radiohead, various people have been speaking to the House of Commons Select Committee and then the, 
you know, the, the labels came in, they were accused of dissembling, i.e. just not being honest or really addressing the, the questions at all. And laughable, the responses were laughable. It was embarrassing. We've never charged a packaging deduction for streaming. The music business has always been every trick in the book. Don't worry, we'll sort it out in 20 years, you know, um, by which point we'll have made so much money that, you know, and retired. There's so many things about streaming that need to be addressed. It's a a shambles. For me personally, owning the music, I have a direct relationship with Spotify or rather my partners in putting my music out, Cobalt or AWOL. You know, I have a much better percentage but I don't take advances. I don't need that. I fund everything from my last tour. So it goes on like that. That's the practical day to day. You know, I'm under financial pressure now. There's no touring going on, blah, blah, blah. This record is free, essentially. I'm just putting it out there. But you know what? I don't care. I don't care. I, I just want people to listen to it. I, I, I'm delighted it's come out now. It feels like the perfect moment. I think it's about preserving your artistic sensibility which sometimes needs nurturing and and to stay healthy even in amongst facing into some kind of financial issues that also need to be looked at square in the face and I think the the tension between that can be very difficult for artists particularly successful artists as they go down the road uh, because there's always an easier kind of journey to take if you follow the the volvo as you mentioned at the start if you follow the volvo aesthetic and just go hang on a minute like i was just reading anthony kiedis's uh i don't know scar tissue i don't know if you've read that book uh anthony kiedis from the red hot chili peppers but he was talking about some of the deals they got offered you know a million quid to fly out here and play to 100 you know executives on top of uh an incredible like in this incredible venue and he was just saying they went out there and it just felt so ridiculous and kind of embarrassing and the you know, but nobody knew about it, so it was okay. <laughs> so then they get out of there again, they go home with their money. Uh, but does it take something from you as well as giving it to you? Of course, yeah. But I mean, it's ent- it depends entirely how you appraise these things. I mean, they're, they're, they're not that significant when you look at them on their own. I, 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 it, it's di- the difficulty it, it lies in the fact that, you, you know, if you have a lot of success, you start to spend a lot of money, you have a lovely life. And it doesn't last forever and you've got to keep it going. So you're just going to make stupid choices to keep the money rolling in because you can't do without the hairdresser and the limo and the sushi chef. You know, it's like it's, uh, you know, they're just must have items. And, um, it, you know, it's it, that's that's what ends up happening. You know, if, you, if you're living like Lenny Kravitz, you're going to you're going to crash and burn very, very quickly because you're going to need loads of money coming in. So you start doing every fucking advert that's offered to you, any private show that's offered to you. I mean, you know, it's it's everyone has to make their own choices. I'm not saying I've never done a private show or whatever, but it's it's just a. But I mean, I'd prefer to have the the freedom that, that I'm granted by not putting myself under huge financial pressure. And, and this is a constant battle, though. It's it's expensive being in the music business. It's expensive having a band, I'm trying to manage all this stuff and do it at a properly. At a, at a good level the last 10 years have been if it weren't for the touring none of it would have made sense so you know it's driven a lot of my touring is basically because I, i'm trying to fund making the next record putting that out da, 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 and then it just goes on but this this little moment now of just putting a record out basically for free online it's just I'm, i i i so the record meant so much it took so long to make it it, it feels like uh, it's, it's not a gift as such uh, but it feels like the perfect thing to be putting out there. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen to it, but I, I, I'm just glad it's there as a resource because it is something that's got a different tempo. Yeah, well, it's about faith as well. I think keeping faith with your art and keeping faith with everything. And uh, apologies, I know I'm running on a bit, so I will finish up. There's a, there's a, there's a lensing effect right now under the pandemic. It, mm. It's magnifying good, bad. The things just get out of proportion very, very quickly. I've already, the hardest thing is to get a few things under your belt and sort of disable the writer's block fear. Well, it strikes um, me you should really be writing a book. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. That's, that's, I've, started, I've started doing a bit of art, so that, that, that's been something I have done during lockdown. Yeah, because did, the cover art for Skellig is your own. Yeah, I, I did the art for the record and everything to do with it. So that was, that was lovely to do that. It was really very straightforward, and, but strangely uh, enjoyable because it, 
it's much easier to work to a brief than just start doing art. And then I'd be thinking, what does it mean? Why am I doing this? This is stupid. Uh, I, none of those voices were there because I'm just like, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just going to see what happens and get. So there's loads of blobs of paint all over the house because basically <laughs> I just got the paints out and. Well, that's really exciting, though, as well, because I think I think going down new avenues is something that people can do in the pandemic, even in this very limited way when we're kind of surrounded by the four walls. Uh, now, I have not asked you about your family. I feel that I compelled to on a podcast called My Roots Are Showing. Uh, now, I'd like to do so in the context of a documentary that came out. Uh, back in, I think it was June 2020, Ireland's Greatest Hit, uh, which, you know, I think a lot of Irish viewers really didn't know too much about your, you know, your mum. And of course, your, your dad is such a character in that, meeting David Bowie at Glastonbury. And it just cast a whole new light on you and your career and your early days and your school days. What was it like, actually, having a documentary just show everyone who you were as, as a kid? <laughs> It was exposing, but I, I, I think it came out very well. I, I think we realised if we didn't venture something, if I didn't allow, I ain't going to be doing some sort of, you know, mythology management. You know, it, it's 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 about showing. But yeah, it, it had the capacity to go horribly wrong, obviously. <laughs> when you start bringing your mum in and she starts talking about, how, you know, uh, how you filled your nappy or something, it's it's got cringe written all over it. But actually, I, I felt that Donald did a really great job of pulling, we gave him a lot of time. Donald and a lot Scannell, of space. yeah. We gave him full access to to that to everybody and everything. And I think he did a really lovely job. It felt very handmade and very much in keeping with the story itself. And yeah, it, it did, it shone a light into my life here a little bit. And my, my parents, my upbringing, the kind of family atmosphere, my dad, my mum, you get a sense of kind of people they are so it provided a bit of context that's never been there before uh, and the kids have never seen any of it it's not like I've got lots of platinum discs up and you know hey let's watch another video of me kids come on uh, so it was I, I could actually show them something and they really enjoyed it and seeing us when we were younger in some of the footage or seeing my dad but that was a bit mind-blowing actually so your dad actually approached David Bowie at Glastonbury to, to talk to him when you were kind of you would have been you would have hung back a bit I wouldn't have bothered. I, I would have I would have made an excuse not to, but he wasn't having it. Uh, he basically knew he was going to die. He had the kind of authority of the you know someone who's only got a few months left. So he kind of went you know fuck it, I'm going over there. So we went with him, and uh, and Bowie couldn't have been more charming. He was absolutely lovely, and that performance he gave afterwards was wonderful as well. Yeah, yeah, that was back in 2000, and uh, yeah, so much. So much time has passed and it's, it's such a, you know, when you think 20, 21 years on, my goodness. Um, but listen, I would close by asking you uh, a question that I meant to ask you at the start uh, about spirituality, because this record is inspired in a way by the monks. Um, it's called yeah. Skellig and it's about the idea that you can go to a bunch of rocks and find a way to make sense of the world and be at peace. And as you get older, you know, we've talked to Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan. Are you becoming increasingly spiritual? Is there something about that uh, meditative approach back in, what was it, 600 AD that is, is increasingly starting to appeal? I don't, I don't know if I'm becoming more spiritual. I, I, I don't think it's a value that's changing. It's only a constant. I think that you just have more to reflect upon. So you've seen more people die and get sick and people being born and you've seen your own vulnerabilities. I mean, doesn't the current moment just make you feel so vulnerable to experience? Because we, we love to think we're in control and that the whole thing is just rock solid. And yeah, this year I'm going to do this. Next year I'll be doing that. In about five years, I'm hoping this. Uh, and then suddenly, no. And um so I don't think I've become more so, but I think the, the resource of music as a means of achieving some kind of escape has just become more and more intense, I'd say that. So that part of, which is a spiritual thing, I think music is of the spirit. Uh, that's, that's, that's something that is definitely, 
I, but I realize it's a finite resource. You know, I, I can't keep singing like this and making like this just indefinitely. It, 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 it's going to run out at some point. Um, and I, I might not have any say in when that is. So um, it, it, it's it, those sort of things change your perspective. But I, I, I've not flirted with religion in any sense. Um, it, it's it, it, I can't I can't find my way in. There isn't there isn't one that fits the bill. And I, I, I just don't think I want a version. I don't want to think of Buddha or Jesus or anybody else. I, uh, it's just vibrating atoms. You know, maybe soon we'll find out whether life is something that just happens in places when bacterial life can begin. And all we are is a sort of fruiting that's gone on for quite a long time. Uh, you know, um, but maybe that isn't the case and we're not going to find anything within the next hundred years and then we'll start thinking jesus this is really crazy we are like the only are we the only ones we can't be uh so anyway i didn't mean to get into a meaning of life thing but that's basically where you're, you're, you're taking me um so it's it's yeah i wouldn't say that it's something a value that's changing um as i get older i just think that you you've got more to reflect on and and less sort of you, you take it, take things less for granted, like your body, you know, things start going wrong, bits start falling off, as my <laughs> uncle says, you know. Um, so it's, it's, that, that, that gives you a different perspective on things. You think, I better get a, I better get a, a move on with all this stuff, especially with these viruses floating around. Yeah, we'll see you at the, what was it they used to say about the frames when they were doing their anniversary <laughs> gigs, that eventually they'd be called the Zimmer frames. <laughs> <laughs> it all come on stage uh, but listen uh, David it's been a pleasure to talk to you for my roots are showing and as you know um, the request is just to pick uh, a track that we could play a fragment from uh, to close the podcast and maybe something uh, from someone who you admire or a song that particularly comes to mind in the context of either this album or or an older one I'm going to use a brand new song so I'll close with as I wander by Bill Callahan. Lovely. Uh, David Gray, thank you so much. Cheers. I travel. I sing. I notice when people notice things. Well, as I wander through the rooms of the world Love archives me The clarion call Can get trapped in a horn In a case beneath the bed The life of a and my thanks again to David Gray. David Gray's new album, Skellig, is out now, and COVID permitting, there are tour dates on the horizon for him as well soon. A quick mention for my Patreon before I head off for another podcast. If you'd like to see this David Gray interview as well as having heard it, it is available via my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan. And you can also find the link to my Patreon via my uh, page on Twitter. So that's twitter.com forward slash my roots are show. And all support via Patreon is very much appreciated. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with me at any stage, you can do so via my personal Twitter page at Nadine O'Regan, N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N. And of course, it's not all about the Patreon support either. Uh, if you like the podcast, please do talk about it to your friends. Give it a like or a star rating on your podcast provider of choice, whether Spotify or iTunes or wherever else. Uh, it all helps spread the word and make more podcasts possible. As ever, thank you so much for listening to my Roots are Showing. It is always a pleasure. Till the next time, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Do take care. For some sweet minutes Everyone is counting on me To get them home